welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Before we get to the interview with Dr. Donald Murphy, I have some housekeeping to take care of. First of all, as a few months ago, we had surpassed 30,000 downloads of the podcast. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes iTunes reviews really help others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. The time you take to write a review will strengthen chiropractic science and support chiropractors everywhere. I wanted to share a recent review on iTunes from someone with the nickname CBowls8677 who said, I stumbled across this podcast as a trimester two chiropractic student. The first segment I listened to was with Dr. Bernadette Murphy and I was hooked. Dr. Dean Smith does an incredible job of guiding the interview fluidly and asking the very questions that come to my mind while listening. As someone who wants to be involved in chiropractic research, Dr. Smith ends his interviews with, what advice would you have for someone interested in pursuing research? The responses from those interviewed have been nothing short of inspiring. I'd recommend this podcast to anyone interested in neuromusculoskeletal medicine, especially manual therapists. Well, thank you so much for those kind words. I look forward to sharing your clever and flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website at chiropracticscience.com by way of the contribution page or simply purchase the Chiropractic Science presentation package, which are evidence-based patient education slides for your practice. We are also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram. Connect with us there to stay up to date on all the latest happenings to learn about the latest podcasts and when they are posted. Okay, on to the podcast. Okay, well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Donald Murphy. I'm really excited that in this interview, we'll discuss topics such as spine care as a framework for the chiropractic identity, as well as primary spine care, psychologic factors in spinal pain, lumbar spinal stenosis, and clinical reasoning in spine pain, or CRISP, protocols. Dr. Murphy is medical director of the Spine Care Program for Care New England, a large multi-hospital system in Rhode Island where he oversees the development and implementation of an integrated spine care pathway. He is also clinical assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine at Alpert Medical School of Brown University. His other faculty appointments include professor, part-time university faculty at Southern California University of Health Sciences, and adjunct associate professor of research at New York Chiropractic College. Dr. Murphy has been admitted as fellow of the Royal College of Chiropractors in the United Kingdom. Dr. Murphy has served on the expert panel for several spine care guidelines, including those of the American College of Environmental and Occupational Medicine, American College of Physicians, and American Pain Society. 
Dr. Murphy has 29 years of experience practicing and teaching primary spine care and has nearly 100 publications in peer-reviewed scientific journals and book chapters. He is the lead instructor for the certification course for primary spine practitioners offered by the University of Pittsburgh. His recent books, Clinical Reasoning and Spine Pain, Volume 1 and Volume 2, serve as the required texts for that course. His consulting activities include assisting hospitals, healthcare systems, and insurers implement high-value spine care services through Spine Care Partners, LLC. Dr. Murphy, it's an honor to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. Well, let's uh, go ahead and dive into uh, the questions I have for you today. And the first one, uh, hopefully an easy one, how did you become interested in becoming a chiropractor? Oh, well, um, that, that is an easy one, although it was, it was a long time ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I was always interested in health. And, uh, you know, I always um, was into physical fitness. And so, um, you know, I had an interest in, um, you know, the, the health and well-being of the, of the human body. And so um, uh, I had um, uh, kind of bounced around a little bit. I, I went to school for two years, and my initial major was uh, theater. Um, I decided that I didn't want to pursue that uh, acting as a career, so, uh, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so, uh, but I did always have an, an interest in health and, and physical fitness. And um, so I, I ended up uh, speaking to a friend of mine who was getting ready to start New York Chiropractic College, and he started telling me about chiropractic. And the, the more he talked about it, the more in- interesting it became, so I started investigating it a bit and um, found that, uh, you know, it, it, it really um, uh, um, interested me in, in terms of my uh, um, interest in, in health and wellness and fitness. So I said, okay, this is what I want to do, and that's uh, where I went. That's terrific. Now, Dr. Murphy, your career is exemplary of the scientist-practitioner model. When and how did you become interested in research and then ultimately contributing to chiropractic science through journal publications? Well, as I was going through my, my schooling and then my career, um, I was filled with questions about um, how to best identify um, problems that exist in, in people that are causing them to suffer, how to best address those problems. And, um, uh, you know, I, I found that um, my, my, my professors at school had a lot of answers, but they um, were unable to answer a lot of my questions just because of, that, of the state of the knowledge base. Um, I went out in my career and I started, um, you know, re, uh, subscribing to journals and reading books and um, really absorbing myself into in the scientific literature and learned a great deal started um, traveling around the country and around the world, um, taking seminars and spending time with, uh, you know, high-quality um, practitioners around the world, and I uh, learned a lot as well. But it seemed like the more I learned, the more questions I had. And so um, I, I, I realized that, you know, the literature only provides so much of the answers to, to my burning questions. So if I'm going to seek the answers to those questions, I'm going to have to go about the process of seeking them myself. And that, uh, that led me into a research career. And what, what I was really um, um, uh, passionate about was um, doing relevant research that really helped clinicians better care for their patients. 
And uh, that, you know, that I, you, I, I felt that the best way to do that would be as a clinician slash scientist, somebody who's actually functioning as a clinician, treating patients, seeing patients every day, uh, encountering the challenges that clinicians uh, encounter, but also asking and seeking the answer to those questions that arise as to how best to to help patients. Uh, that's a, that's terrific. I really uh, appreciate all of the work that you do and and the knowledge and experience that you have. I'm just curious after all of these years of practice and publishing, do you still have lots of burning questions? I still have a burning passion to, to learn more knowledge and experience and uh, to know more about what causes people to suffer and how uh, I and we can best help them overcome that suffering. And, and uh, no, all the, the, all the answers have not been answered yet. And so uh, until they are, I'm going to keep seeking and keep doing the best I can now with, with the knowledge that we have. And that's the one thing that you have to, uh, to, to um, be mindful of is that have the burning questions. Um, don't become complacent with uh, what you know now, but accept what you know now. All you can ever do is the best you can with what you know at the present moment. And be comfortable with that. Be passionate about doing the best you can in helping your patients, but at the same time have that drive to uh, become better, to, um, to find better ways to, to identify um, what ails patients and how we can help. Yeah, terrific. So we'll explore some of these issues and, and your search for finding some of these better ways. Uh, you've authored numerous publications and a variety of excellent peer-reviewed journals during this interview. We're going to discuss some of your interests and some of your contributions to our field. So I'll go ahead and just get started with uh, some of these. And, and the first one is a, a very recent publication. This comes from the Journal of Chiropractic Humanities and is a paper entitled Spine Care as a Framework for the Chiropractic Identity. Could you guide us through um, that paper, what, what your main uh, ideas were and, and, and what uh, practitioners and, let's say, chiropractic students and anybody interested in chiropractic can take away from this paper? Yes, this is a topic that uh, I've been thinking about, talking about, and writing about for, for some time. And um, I spoke with uh, Dr. Michael Schneider. He, uh, we have all been thinking and writing and talking, uh, sometimes with each other, sometimes on our own, about this topic. And uh, so we decided to, to put together a paper. Um, I had been the lead author of two papers uh, several years ago that were published um, on this topic, and uh, we decided, you know, it's a, I think it's a good idea to update this topic and uh, to, to uh, address it uh, in light of what has, what has gone on in the evolution of the spine care world and in the, the evolution of the chiropractic world in, in the ensuing years since we had written those, uh, th those original papers. And basically, uh, it was our position that, you know, the chiropractic profession uh, has um, been in existence for, you know, um, over 100 years, well over 100 years at this point. And um, it has uh, achieved great strides in terms of um, uh, becoming better accepted within mainstream healthcare and with, within mainstream society. But we really feel that 
we have a ways to go uh, before we really become fully um, in, uh, in, integrated into mainstream society and mainstream healthcare. And so one of the things that, that has been a problem for us, we, we saw, is that uh, we, we've never carved out for ourselves a clear identity. Uh, you know, who are we and what, what do we do and what do we have to offer the, uh, the healthcare world? Um, we kind of have been uh, functioning in our own um, a little cocoon, as it were, and we had our, our, our population of patients, and by and large, uh, our, our patients are very, very happy with our services, uh, but there are lots of people out there that are not seeing chiropractors. And so we uh, recognize that a successful profession is one that uh, is formed in response to a clear societal need. And uh, so we decided to look at uh, chiropractic and um, it, uh, the desire of, of the chiropractic profession, and certainly our desire for the chiropractic profession, to become more uh, ingrained in the mainstream of society and to have greater utilization by society. And so we decided to look at, at that from the framework of, well, what do successful pr professions do? They respond to a societal need that society has determined uh, it, it needs. Um, rather than the profession de determining what that need is, and um, and then responding to that need in, in the, uh, the the most high quality way possible, and so we said, well, what skills do uh, chiropractors have um, that respond to an existing societal need um, that society has recognized that, that that is out there, and so we number one saw in society in healthcare. The, the absolute mess that spine care is. Um, spine care in our society is, is, uh, is uh, highly expensive and highly ineffective and highly inefficient. And so this is a real problem, and, and we have problems in, in our healthcare system in general in terms of efficiency and, and cost effectiveness, but nowhere is it more stark than in the, in the area of spine care. Um, then we looked at the chiropractic profession and we, we thought, well, what knowledge and skills do they have that they have more than any other? In, in, in what area do um, chiropractors have knowledge and skills that they have more than in any other area? And clearly it's spine. Um, most of our education is, is on spine. We have a, a, a um, uh, eclectic education in terms of uh, anatomy and physiology and pathology and differential diagnosis but the majority of our clinical training is in the spine. So really, if we're going to um, establish ourselves uh, as a profession that has something of value to offer society uh, in an area that society has a, a real acknowledged and perceived need, it's spine care. And so that's, that's the, the, the basis of that paper. Okay, terrific. Yeah, no question. The society uh, everywhere needs uh, somebody well-versed in spine. That's for sure. Uh, number one disability in the world, uh, low back pain, right? So it's, uh, it's a huge issue everywhere. Right. Well, and neck pain is number four. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So spine as a whole is just incredible. So in, in this paper and in your viewpoint then, uh, are are chiropractors specialists? Um, yes, I would say that chiropractors are specialists in the sense that they specialize in a very focused area of healthcare, and that is spine. 
um, they again the the um, the the analogy the best analogy would be the the general dentist. Uh, one can say that the general dentist is a specialist. Uh, one can also argue that the general dentist is a primary care person, but in in a specific area that is in oral health. And so um, we're a specialist from that standpoint. Um, we're a, 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 you know, a, another analogy would be the optometry um, or podiatry, that we focus on a specific area of health that um, we have uh, a unique skill set in that uh, other practitioners don't have. Okay. What, what is primary spine care? Primary spine care is also an area that I've done uh, a lot of thinking, writing, talking, and discussing about. And this is a, uh, a new um, uh, role in the healthcare system that um, I am part of a, a movement, um, certainly not the only part, but I am part of a movement in introducing this as a new service line, a new practitioner type in the healthcare system. That is uh, primary care for patients with spine problems. Again, getting back to the uh, the, the dentist analogy, um, the, the general dentist is the primary care person for patients with oral health. Uh, we also have specialists in that area, periodontists, endodontists, etc. But the, um, the uh, general dentist is the first person, the go-to person that people go to for, for oral health problems uh, and that the general dentist is able to manage the majority without, without the need for referral to specialists however specialists are available when they're needed. And so uh, that's, that, that analogy isn't a perfect analogy, but uh, that basically what is what spine, primary spine care is. Primary spine care is, number one, manage the, have the knowledge and skills to manage the majority without the need for referral, but also to be able to make um, decisions with regard to differential diagnosis if uh, further uh, uh, diagnostic evaluation is needed, if um, a specialist consult or specialist services are needed, uh, injection, surgery, acupuncture, behavioral health, um, uh, or whatever uh, may be the case in terms of the individual patient's needs, and then also, importantly, to follow up with the patient after they've seen, re received that diagnostic workup or received that specialty um, services, and then determine from there, okay, where are we at now? How are you doing now? What do we need to do at this point, if anything, to accelerate you on the road to recovery and to, to, to guide that patient on the road to recovery? Uh, this means to having skills in, in uh, number one, uh, the biopsychosocial model of, of spine care. That is, what are the specific biological, psychological, and social factors that contribute to the spine pain experience? Uh, the ability to identify those factors in addition to identifying um, pathological factors that, uh, that may be um, producing the patient's spine problem, but also uh, being able to coordinate the services of a, of a variety of, of practitioners out there who may have something to offer this patient and to be able to follow up with the patient and, again, keep them on track toward recovery. And so that, that would be the role of the primary spine practitioner, similar to the primary care doctor, the general internist or the family medicine the, the role that they play in most other areas of, of health care, this would be the role of the primary spine practitioner, except specifically for patients with spine problems. Okay, very good. So 
the chiropractors that are in practice now, how, how would they uh, get to that level of primary spine care? Is there a certification program that they would go through? Is that how you envision it? And could you tell me about that if there is yeah. such? Yeah, uh, chiropractors are the professionals that um, have, uh, are, are closest to having the knowledge and skills uh, necessary to play this role. Uh, we, don't, we don't get all of the knowledge and skills that we need uh, to play this role in chiropractic school, but we have a good foundation that can be built upon that to, to then transition into that role of primary spine practitioner. And so um, I've had the, 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 the good fortune of um, being part of a team that has developed a certification course through the University of Pittsburgh um, as, uh, in conjunction with um, with the uh, the, uh, the Southern California U University of Health Sciences um, to develop a uh, a curriculum for a one year course uh, that trains patient uh, uh, trains practitioners who have the uh, appropriate background to be able to to be uh, trained to become primary spine practitioners. Uh, chiropractors have that appropriate background, and so uh, this is a uh, a, a one year course. Uh, with which ends up with certification through the University of Pittsburgh that involves five units. Uh, each unit has uh, a live weekend class and then uh, a, a, a group of um, online courses. And there are uh, five written tests and then a practical test at the end uh, that people will have to pass in order to, to gain certification as a primary spine practitioner. Okay, very good. Now, is that program already up and going? And if so, how do people apply? It's um, uh, in the process. It's almost complete. We actually have a, a, a date scheduled for the first weekend uh, in December. The first weekend of December is um, the, the, the weekend of, volume, of uh, Unit 1. And we're expecting the... Um, uh, uh, the online courses for Unit 1 to be up and running uh, by late summer or, or early fall so people can, can enroll in the course, start taking the distance learning classes in preparation for the, the live class in December. Um, but things are, things are still uh, in, in the process of being finalized. So, um, so, we, so the, the course, everything about the course is not finalized yet, but we're, we're very, very close to, to finalizing. Okay. Okay, very good. Let's get on to another uh, paper, and, and I know you have a, a lot of interest and experience in this uh, issue, and that is the usefulness of clinical measures of psychological factors in patients with spine pain and, and dealing with uh, psychological factors in practice. So the paper I'd like to, to discuss, and certainly any other uh, issues you'd like to bring up about psychological factors uh, comes from JMPT in 2011. Uh, can you tell us about uh, that paper? Yes. Um, uh, the, the evolution of this came from um, my, uh, as I was talking about earlier, my study of um, the literature and um, uh, of clinical observations of patients over the years and becoming increasingly aware of the role that psychological factors play in the perpetuation of the ongoing uh, pain, disability, and, and suffering experience that people, uh, people undergo and people see us for. And so uh, it became more and more clear over time that these psychological factors are, are, are very important. And 
And uh, so, you know, I, I never dreamed when I graduated from New York Chiropractic College in 1988 that I would end as much as I now, because if I was going to help them overcome the problem, I needed to understand what the problem was. And uh, a lot of the, uh, a, lo- a lot of what was perpetuating the problem were these uh, normal uh, but unhelpful psychological processes that people go through when they have a, a, a spine pain experience. So what led to this paper was, uh, was uh, uh, again, getting back to, to, again, what I was talking about as a clinician scientist, my desire to um, be able to identify uh, these psychological factors in my patients in a way that is clinically um, efficient in a way that uh, could be applied in a busy clinical environment, which is where uh, I was functioning. And so, um, you know, and this has been the case with all of my, um, my uh, clinical work and my research is, you know, finding ways not just to identify uh, what the factors are that are producing the pain, disability, and suffering experience, but also ways in which I can detect these in a, in a manner that is, uh, able to be applied in a busy clinical environment. So if you need to, if you need to do a diagnostic test that requires, you know, uh, 20 minutes to do to, to perform one test, well, that's not an efficient way of of uh, of, of con- conducting a practice. So because there's so many other different things that you have to do in the context of a new patient exam, for example. Um, so in uh, the same thing with psychological factors, there are lots of different questionnaires out there that you can um, give to patients and they can answer and you can gain a lot of high-quality information about um, their um, uh, perceptions and their emotional responses and their psychological um, uh, cognitions about this problem. But do you, you know, do you make your patients sit there for an hour filling out questionnaires? Well, they're, they're, they're going to walk out the door. So, so anything that you do that is uh, bringing you diagnostic information has to be uh, applicable to a busy clinical environment or, or else it's just not useful. And so this is where this, this paper came, came from. I uh, found in the literature uh, some uh, uh, instruments that uh, ask questions about psychological perpetuating factors, and I wanted to find out, okay, is this brief battery of, um, of, of uh, questionnaires, is this useful in terms of gaining important clinical uh, psychological information? So in this, in this particular study, we used the um, 11-item Tampa scale for kinesiophobia. Kinesiophobia basically, literally by name, it means fear of movement. And so the, uh, the original Tampa scale uh, was a 17-question scale, but I had discovered a paper that, that pared it down to 11 questions and found that the 11-question que- uh, questionnaire was just as effective as the 17 questions. And I also found in the literature a uh, coping screen where, that asked two, two questions taken from a larger um, questionnaire called the Coping Strategies Questionnaire. Uh, that also these two questions, comp- uh, the, the um, findings compared fairly well with the larger questionnaire. Uh, and then I looked at the, the Born Myth Disability Questionnaire, which is an outcome measure, but has a depression scale and an anxiety scale, just one simple uh, uh, question that g- gives you information about depression and anxiety. And so we, we looked at, um, uh, boy, almost 400 patients 
um, with neck or back pain, and uh, and found that um, number one, the, uh, having people um, answer these these simple questionnaires uh, at baseline and at at re-exam because you want to know if there's a, their improvement is is uh, occurring was well um, well tolerated, well accepted by patients. So patients were willing to spend the time, uh, which is only a few minutes, to, to, to answer these questions, uh, but also gave us uh, quality information in terms of, of the psychological uh, constructs. And we found that um, the, these questionnaires these, that we're studying look at different psychological factors that can contribute to the spine pain experience, fear, uh, anxiety, depression, coping strategies. So, and we found uh, when we look at the, at the, the data that it is important to, um, to look at a number of different um, psychological factors that you don't have to look at every psychological factor that could possibly be, be contributing. But it is important to look at more than one, to look at a, a variety, because there is there's a certain amount of overlap. Um, but there, uh, it's it's not a situation where okay, if you if you've got one, you've got them all. So we we felt that uh, we had found a pretty good balance of um, of of uh, different uh, looking at different constructs while at the same time making it efficient and, and not uh, burdensome to the patient. Okay, thanks for that explanation. Which psychological measures would you recommend for, let's say, a busy chiropractor in practice to use? Yeah, so um, so certainly in this paper, I, my my uh, thinking and my study of this topic has evolved since that time. Uh, but certainly, this paper would show that if you can uh, simply use the Tampa scale, those eleven questions. Um, the, 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 the two-question coping strategy sc- screen and the Bournemouth Disability Questionnaire, um, which has a, a depression and anxiety scale, you're getting a pretty good uh, assessment of their um, psychological status uh, and, and, and whether there, is, uh, there are, are clinically meaningful psychological factors that are contributing. And you can have them by re-answer these questions at re-exam. You can document whether they're improving in these areas, and so uh, so that's a fairly efficient way of going about um, asking questions uh, and 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 finding out the answers. Okay, perfect. So you'd recommend then uh, to use these scales at new patient intake, and then any reassessments down the road, so you can follow up on on those improvements. Hopefully, uh, in that. Um, since yes, hopefully improvements, and if, and if they're not improving, that's important information too. Uh, what do I need to do about it? Exactly, exactly. Well, since these psychological factors ha- do have high correlations to neck and back pain, at what point in time would you suggest that our patients who have these issues be co-managed for their psychological issues? And and who do you think chiropractors might want to refer to? Right. So th- this is, again, uh, the, the usefulness of having them uh, complete these kinds of questionnaires both at baseline and, and at re-exam because if at the first re-exam or maybe the second re-exam, if you want to kind of give them a, a little bit of a, an opportunity uh, to improve with, with chiropractic care, because I'll back up and say that um, with standard chiropractic care um, or with primary spine care, if that's what you're practicing, uh, a lot of these psychological 
factors will improve as their um, somatic factors improve. Uh, so um, if they have high um, fear or depression or anxiety or uh, uh, um, uh, problematic coping or low self-efficacy, in the beginning, many will improve with your care. Uh, but those that don't at the first re-exam, or certainly by the second, if they're not uh, ex if they're not ex experiencing and demonstrating quantitatively significant improvement, that's when you want to uh, seek the services of a psychologist. And specifically, what you want to look for is a psychologist who's trained in either cognitive behavioral therapy, or acceptance and commitment therapy, or preferably both specifically for pain. So in other words, uh, being uh, a psychologist being trained in cognitive behavioral therapy or, and or acceptance and commitment therapy, but not specifically for pain, well, they can be useful. But even better would be somebody who's trained in applying those psychological uh, techniques specifically in patients in pain, which is a kind of a, a very focused area. So what the, again, what the uh, chiropractor is going to want to do is um, go around the community, look around the community and, and communicate with psychologists and, and many social workers have these, these skills also and find out who has that training in, again, either cognitive behavioral therapy or commitment uh, or acceptance and commitment therapy or both specifically for pain. Excellent. Yeah, excellent advice. Well, let's take a look at uh, another paper uh, or another trial. And actually, I don't think this has been published yet. Maybe you can correct me, but uh, this is the lumbar spinal stenosis trial. Um, and I know you presented uh, or your team presented the the work at DC 2017, not too long ago. Um, but maybe you can take it over from here and, and tell us about that trial. If, if, you, if you feel comfortable uh, talking about that trial pre-publication. Sure, absolutely. Um, uh, um, spinal stenosis has been an area of, of uh, keen interest of mine for some time. As a matter of fact, part, partly with this trial, this randomized controlled trial that we recently um, conducted, um, the genesis of that was in an observation that uh, spinal stenosis is a very common problem. Um, and when you look at the literature uh, in terms of non-surgical um, uh, approaches to, to spinal stenosis. There's very little out there. There's very little in the literature as to what what uh, people can do non-surgically to overcome spinal stenosis. Meanwhile, in my practice, I had developed a protocol for uh, treating spinal stenosis that seemed to me, just by by, by critical observation, seemed to me to be helpful. Um, well, what one thing that I've learned in in practice is that if you think you're getting good results. Don't leave it at that. Uh, systematically uh, measure your results because you may be surprised at what you find. Um, but certainly, um, uh, it, it, it seemed to me that I was getting good results with patients with, with um, uh, spinal stenosis with this protocol that I'll, that I'll talk about what the protocol is in a second. And so I said, well, I want to see if, if I'm right. Uh, if my, my, my critical observation is right, am I, am I getting as good outcomes as I think? So I, uh, I conducted a, an, a, a, an observational study where we looked at, um, uh, I think it was 59, uh, it's been a while since I uh, looked at the study, 
uh, 59 patients with um, spinal stenosis, consecutive patients, and we were measuring our outcomes as part of our, our normal uh, um, conducting of clinical practice. And I uh, applied the protocol I had been using, that it, which is focused on uh, distraction manipulation, or some people call it flexion distraction, or some people call it Cox technique. Um, uh, distraction manipulation combined with neural mobilization of the involved nerve root, that is, exercises and manual uh, treatments to mobilize the involved nerve root, along with distraction manipulation designed to, to mobilize the segment that is, is stenotic. And so what we found was that there was um, uh, clinically meaningful improvement. We used the Roland Morris questionnaire as our primary outcome measure at that time. Clinically meaningful improvement in, in Roland Morris uh, uh, questionnaire occurred uh, from baseline to the end of treatment. Then we followed up with, with patients an average of 16.5 months afterward and found that the, um, their improvement had been maintained over uh, almost a year and a half after stopping treatment. Wow. And so, uh, again, my, what I found was my, my critical observation was validated or, or, or um, uh, supported by these results that we get good outcomes from outcomes are, the improvement is maintained over a year and a half. Uh, and people are, you know, patients are instructed to stay with your exercises and you know, keep, keep that the neural, uh, the neural mobilization exercises, keep that nerve root moving, the spine mobilization exercises, keep, keep your spine moving. We didn't monitor the compliance with that, but certainly that was our approach. Um, but wh whatever the reason, their, their um, um, improvement was maintained. So um, this led to, you know, one step, uh, one thing led to another and led to the, the, the design of this randomized control trial um, to compare um, three groups. Uh, one group received a, a, a similar protocol, and, and I'm going to back up for a second. What we discovered also while we were developing this trial was that there was a doctor in, in, uh, in Toronto, uh, Carlo Amendolia, who, um, who was also treating a lot of people with spinal stenosis, who was also using a protocol very similar to, to ours, um, uh, uh, focused on distraction manipulation, uh, side posture manipulation in, in, in addition, and with that was our, our approach as well, not, not only distraction, but um, in, in those who needed it, side posture manipulation, neural mobilization, exercises, except he organized it into a boot camp that, okay, when, you're in, when, when you come in here for stenosis care, you're enrolled in a boot camp, and you're expected to comply with your exercises and, and, and uh, be, you make your, your, your visits, uh, visit appointments and really uh, dedicate yourself to, to uh, overcoming this, this problem because the only alternative is surgery, and so, which is an interesting thing that I'll talk about in a second. So we, we designed this trial kind of combining the, the, the two protocols, which, again, were very, very similar. And we used um, the Swiss Spinal Stenosis Questionnaire, which is a, a questionnaire similar to like the Oswestry or the Roland Morris or the, the Neck Disability Index, the Bournemouth Questionnaire that we're all familiar with, but it's specific to stenosis. And we also used the self-paced walking test, which is simply a, uh, a test where people walk a certain, a, a certain distance and they stop when, uh, at the point at which, in their perception, pain causes them to have to stop. Um, and so we compared um, three groups. Number one was usual medical care, where they saw a physiatrist, and the physiatrist 
just did whatever he, he, uh, he or she would normally do, um, medication, advice, exercise, sometimes epidural steroid injection. Uh, the a second group was group exercise, where they enrolled in a community exercise designed to specifically target el elderly people, just getting them exercising, getting them moving, et cetera. And then the third arm was the, our um, um, manual therapy and exercise, we called it, arm, which is basically the protocol. And, uh, and we found that, um, uh, that we followed them up at, so far at two months and six months. We haven't done long-term follow-ups yet uh, because we, the time, not enough time has passed yet. But what we found was that there was, there was um, uh, significant change improvement in the Swiss spinal stenosis questionnaire in the, in the protocol group compared to the other two groups. The, the protocol group uh, did, did fared better in all of the different um, outcome measures than the um, other two groups, but the, the change in the Swiss spinal stenosis questionnaire in particular was, um, was a significant change. But what we also did, and this is really important, I, I, and, and for those of your listeners who are budding um, scientists, I really think this is important to, to do a responder analysis where you look at not only how the, each group did on average, but you look at how many people in this group had a clinically meaningful improvement, how many people in that group had a clinically mean, meaningful improvement, where you can really look at, at you know, each group um, you know, what, what was there a, a significant number of people who benefited? And what we found was um, in, in, uh, in all of the outcome measures in the responder analysis, uh, a greater percentage of people um, had a positive response in, in uh, the protocol group compared to the, the other two groups. So this was encouraging um, because it's, it's one of the, the rare randomized controlled trials that have been done on non-surgical management of patients with spinal stenosis. Um, now, I'll, 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 um, I'll encourage you to, to interview um, Dr. Amendolia, who, who did the, he, he did his own trial of his boot camp uh, um, uh, approach, which uh, was interesting because from a, um, a protocol standpoint, what the practitioners did on each visit is almost identical in his trial, except he had the boot camp environment, and where, again, He's, he's, uh, patients are expected to commit to this, and you're going to do your exercises, and you're, in a, you're enrolled in a boot camp, and it's that environment that is different in his trial compared to ours, and his results were actually better than ours. Um, and, and I really think that that boot camp um, environment is what makes the difference, um, uh, you know, really getting people committed to, I'm... I'm going to get better. This is this is my one chance to 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 to, to uh, improve because the only thing that's that's left is surgery, and I'm going to commit to this, and I'm going to do my exercises, and I'm I'm going to and and, and I have a a, a doctor, uh, you know the 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 chiropractor who's going to be on top of me and making sure I'm I'm doing my exercises and I'm committed to this thing. That environment seems to create an even better outcome um, than just pr providing the the actual techniques, which in in and of themselves produce a a, a beneficial response, uh, but the environment, is, it, it takes it to the next level. So, uh, so I really think this, is, this will be an important line of research um, because uh, for many people, and, and it's funny when I talk about this, uh, when I, I have meetings uh, regularly with um, the neurosurgeons and, and, uh, and orthopedic spine surgeons, and especially the neurosurgeons, they just can't get their head around uh, the possibility that spinal stenosis can improve non-surgically. 
because there is an anatomical change. And in their mind, you, th there's no way this patient can, po can possibly get better unless you fix the anatomy, take out that, those osteophytes and that hypertrophied ligament and flavum, and that's the only w possible way this person can, can possibly improve. And I keep making the point that the human body can handle a little bit of pathoanatomy as long as physiology and psychology is right. And so if you, if you can appropriately address physiology and biomechanics, and psychology, many patients can, can their, their, their human body is very adaptable to this change in anatomy. And so it's, it's a really an interesting discussion, but of course the data speaks for itself. You know, the fact is we can help people with spinal stenosis and we can help them avoid surgery. Wow, this is really fascinating. I, I appreciate your thorough explanation of the trial and the, the uh, pre-study that you did and, and all of your explanations here. This is really amazing. And the boot camp sounds amazing, too. Uh, just curious, have you, since you've seen the results of the trial, have you tried to implement in your own practice some, some of the boot camp ideas, you know, getting people really engaged and Yes, that's exactly because again, the 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 the, the remainder of the protocol was was my protocol. It was, it was, um, it, that maximizes the ability of the patient to to, to to get a better outcome. And that's one thing that I that I'd, I could spend an hour another hour talking about, and maybe someday we can. But context is is it has a huge impact on outcome. So the things that you do mechanically that we, we, we tend to, uh, to um, put so much importance on. You know, the manipulation, how you do it, the exercise, how, how the patient's performing it, how you show them, uh, et cetera. Those things are all important, but the context in which you're doing those things really makes a huge difference in terms of, of their, uh, their improvement. And so th that's where the, the boot, camp, boot camp concept has really influenced me. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I want to spend a little bit of time in talking about your two books, The Clinical Reasoning in Spine Pain, or CRISP, protocols. And I know you have two volumes. Uh, I've looked through your, your first volume, haven't had a chance to read the second volume yet, but can you tell us and, and the audience um, what these two books are all about? Well, um, again, in my evolution as a clinician slash scientist, um, I've, I've looked at all of the literature and um, uh, kind of whenever I read a study, I, I look at it in, in the context of, okay, how can this help me better help my patients? And so I, I've uh, examined the entire world literature, um, traveled the world uh, learning from people, and, 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 and um, found commonalities. Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff out there. There are a lot of things that have been shown to be helpful. Um, most of them, when you look at randomized controlled trials, they're all, they only help a little bit. But if you take the different things from these different um, schools of thought, from these different studies, and you put them into a clinical reasoning process by which you can determine who needs what when, you have all these different treatment approaches, you have communication approaches, um, all of which have evidence of, of benefit. But the key is, what do I need to do in what uh, patient and at what point in the, in the care process? That really gets at the heart of efficiency. Um, and and uh, applying evidence-based practice, that's really important, and that's the buzzword. But how do you apply it in a way that's clinically efficient, uh, that's, that, that uh, allows you to, to have a, 
an organized thinking process that allows you to apply the, the uh, evidence-based approach. And that became my, my next obsession, <laughs> if you will. And that culminated in the CRISP protocols, where it's simply a way to look at uh, the biopsychosocial model, right, all the biological factors that can contribute to the pain, disability, and suffering experience, the psychological factors, the social context in which they live, looking at who contribute to this patient's problem, finding out using reliable and valid means, finding out, okay, in this particular individual, what are the key factors that are contributing to their problem? And using this clinical reasoning process to come up with a diagnosis. And because spinal pain is multifactorial, the diagnosis has multiple factors to them. Uh, there, there are somatic factors, there are neurophysiological factors, there are psychological factors. Identifying what are the key factors in this particular individual patient. And once I identify them, then what is the best thing to do to address those factors to improve their situation and help them uh, overcome the problem? And so the uh, CRISP protocols, clinical reasoning and spine pain, is simply applying this clinical reasoning process to identify the key factors in each individual patient and to come up with a treatment plan that specifically um, addresses those factors and all of it based on the evidence that's out there in the, in the literature. Um, so it, it's evidence-based, it applies the biopsychosocial model, and it's practical in a busy practice environment. Yeah, very good. Well, I'd highly encourage uh, everyone to check out your Clinical Reasoning and Spine Pain Protocol books, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Uh, fascinating. I can't wait to... They're available to get... on Amazon.com, just, just to let you know. Okay, okay, terrific. And uh, I'll put a link yeah, uh, yeah. I'll put a link to the textbooks as well uh, from the podcast so that people can check those out. That's great. Well, I'm curious, yeah. with, with all of your research and, and, and your busy practice life, uh, I'm just curious because I I ha am in practice, but I'm only in practice part time, and I teach and do research um, also. Uh, so maybe this is uh, just for me, but I'm sure lots of other people want to know how to do this too. But what are some of the strategies that you use? Uh, for example, you read a you read an article, you get really excited. Oh wow, I need to incorporate th that somehow into practice. What do you do? Do you just go ahead and implement it right away? Do you think about how it's going to fit best into your efficiency? How do you go about that process? I'm just curious. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and again, one thing that I've been I've been really adamant about is efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. So whenever I learn something new, I the, that's the first thing I think of is how does this fit into the big picture? And that's the other important thing is always having a big picture in mind. Okay, and so, so for me, the way I organize my thinking of the big picture is the CRISP protocols. Okay, that gives me the big picture, first gives me the big picture, but then it gives me the specifics that I need to apply in, okay, where does this patient fit into the big picture? Or if I learn something new, where does this new knowledge or this new skill fit into the big picture? And always starting with that big picture is, is really helpful because then you have a... Um, then you have, to, to use the word again, context, in which the, this new knowledge that I've, I've obtained is now meaningful because I figured out how to fit it into the big picture. And I think, again, coming from that big picture orientation but, and then looking at each piece of knowledge or skill and it, looking at how that fits into the big picture is, is the, 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 the efficient way to, to go about this. Okay, very good. Very good. Yeah, it's a, it's a question that I 
struggle with sometimes. Uh, we're both in the literature, it seems, every single day looking at lots of things, and, and it's hard sometimes to make it be completely efficient. So I like that step back, look at everything in the context, and then find a way to plug it into the practice. That's that's great. Yes, so otherwise what happens is, and this is what I this is what I find with people who are trying to, you know, earnestly trying to be evidence based, is that okay, this study comes out, okay, I have to yeah, I have to chase after that study. I have to do this now. Then another study, okay, I have to start to chase after that study and do start doing that now. And then another study comes out and you're always zigzagging back and forth from one study to the next, and, and it, it really can drive you nuts, um, which, again, is why having the big picture in mind and looking at how this study fits into the big picture is so useful. For sure, and heaven forbid that another study <laughs> doesn't find the same results, right? <laughs> yeah, and, that, and, well, and that's why, again, it's looking at this study in the context of the entire literature, because there are going to be conflicting studies. Yeah. Uh, and there are, there are going to be seemingly conflicting studies, but when you really understand the breadth of the literature, they're not, they're, they're not as conflicting as they appear to be because they're looking at slightly different questions. But if you don't have the, the broad understanding of the entire literature, then it, it, it oftentimes looks like the studies are more conflicting than they really are. Yes, Absolutely. Well, a goal of this podcast series is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors or, or students that may wish to become scientists? Um, yes. So what I, what I suggest is, have a, number one, have a burning desire to answer important clinical questions. That should be where you're coming from. Uh, that burning desire should, should drive you, um, number one. Number two, I would strongly uh, urge people to always be thinking in terms of how does, what, what kind of clinical questions can I ask that, that specifically impact patients' lives, um, specifically help clinicians better care for patients, uh, specifically help patients um, be more uh, equipped to help themselves, um, always have the patient in mind. And you can be at a, at a bench in a lab and still have the patient in mind. Um, so that, that's the, that, that, I think, is the biggest key. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you, Dr. Murphy, so much for coming on the podcast uh, today and sharing all of your, your wealth of information. I really appreciate uh, all of the insight that you had to offer us. Thank you, Dr. Smith. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again for listening to this great interview with Dr. Donald Murphy. I hope you now have a greater appreciation for the role of chiropractic research in your practice. Stay tuned for more episodes. If you have suggestions or comments about the show, please let me know.